coming up. Just doing it in your backyard, it's like, it's radical, but it's also a beautiful idea, I think. That's how it was done. <laughs> you know, it was done just for your own entertainment. This hour, we'll hear the stories of the art made in our own backyard by old-time musicians, actors, painters, and even basket weavers a hundred years ago and today. I'm WFIU Arts Desk Editor Yael Cassander. Welcome. Over the year, WFIU's arts reporters take listeners to artistic destinations all across south-central Indiana, from the renowned to the unlikely. This year, we've reported from museums and symphony halls but also wrestling rings, graveyards, and suburban neighborhoods. This hour, we'll head to a farmhouse in Brown County, where the Indiana Museum of Modern Art once hung its shingle. We'll learn why it took more than 50 years for a seven-time all-star baseball great to get a gravestone. And we'll ring in the new year with a story about the discovery of a long-forgotten yet valuable set of handbells in a Columbus church basement. Stay tuned. Many of our favorite art stories this year involve time travel at the prompting of an object or a monument that captured the imagination and demanded inquiry. That object was a simple basket in the first story we'll share, which was produced by Annie Corrigan. John Kay came into the WFIU studios carrying a basket. This is a basket that my great-great-grandmother used to both feed the chickens and to gather eggs in. It's an oak rod basket. His great-great-grandmother lived in Heltonville, Indiana. You can imagine her draping it on her arm as she did chores around the farm. It's made with these long white oak rods, which the makers would have pulled through these dies to to kind of render the the splits of white oak into a round form. And then it's got a single handle over the top. It's a sturdy basket. You can just tell it took a lot of effort to bend and weave the oak rods into the oval shape. This family heirloom was the inspiration for Kay's latest research project, looking into the history and eventual disappearance of oak rod basket making in southern Indiana. He's the director of Traditional Arts Indiana. This was the type of craft that someone would be a farmer during the day, and then in the evening they may go out and make four or five baskets. He traced the practice back to three men, and this was a craft practiced almost exclusively by men. Henry Hovis brought the tradition to Brown County in 1848. George Bohall taught his five sons how to make baskets. That family was so famous, oak rod baskets were often called Bohall baskets. A bit later, Rube Morgan and his family got into basketry. They sold their wares to hardware stores, to their neighbors. Kay combed through historic photographs and discovered that these baskets were part of everyday life. Uh, you can see uh, images of near Stonehead of a big long table with the family all standing uh, behind it, the food all spread out on the table. And underneath the table, nicely tucked away, are a few of these uh, oak rod baskets. That was in the 1920s and 30s. Demand went up when tourists started visiting Brown County and wanting these baskets as souvenirs. But after World War II, traditional baskets lost favor to more decorative versions imported from Kentucky and Tennessee. And in terms of locals using them for farm work, it made more sense to use plastic buckets than oak rod baskets. The grandsons of Hovis and Bohall made baskets through the 1980s, but that was the generation that didn't pass the skill on to their kids. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when the craft stopped, 
Kay says it just sort of faded away. There isn't a handbook or how-to guide for making oak rod baskets. For his research, Kay had been planning to measure every last inch of his great-grandmother's basket to learn as much as he could about the maker's process. But then he started asking around. One of the best leads is I, I actually went to talk with Claude Morgan, Rube Morgan's son, who actually made one basket when he was a kid. He's probably the last of, of the makers, you might say, even though he says he's not a basket maker. He made one. Kay asked to see the place where Rube Morgan did his work back in the turn of the century. Because oh, our family doesn't own that property anymore. Kay insisted because he knew Morgan used to write his patterns on the wall where he worked. And he goes, what? I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, let's go see if we can if we can find it. And we went to the barn. Now, this guy died in 1981 and went to this the barn where he used to work, asked the people who own the property now. And I go in there and on his wall, on the door jam and on post of the walls of his barn. He has all the materials written out, what links, how many rods, the, the recipes, you might say, uh, right there on the wall of the barn. Jackpot. He snapped pictures so he could analyze Morgan's process and write up his recipes. The current owners say Kay got there just in time. They had been thinking about putting a fresh coat of paint on that wall. For WFIU Arts, I'm Annie Corrigan. Folklorist John Kay's curiosity about the lost art of oak rod basket weaving led him to an old barn in the country. Other noteworthy landmarks are hiding in plain sight. Josh Brewer discovered that an unassuming limestone ranch house in Bloomington, Indiana, had been a hotbed of musical activity at mid-century. Mark Hood and his friends had traveled to Bloomington from Michigan. It was 1972, and they were there to record an album at Guilfoy Sound Studios. But when they pulled up to a suburban house, they were having doubts. The house was in a quiet neighborhood. The homes were all 50-style ranch houses with limestone facades. From the outside, it was like we're going into somebody's garage to record, but then you get inside, and here's this as big a console as I'd ever seen at that point, and this giant tape machine and really great speakers and actually a lot of good microphones. And so Jack had great equipment, but it was all kind of stuffed in his house. Less than a year after that first recording session at Guilfoy Sound Studios, Mark became an employee working for Jack Guilfoy. He's average height, dark hair, wore glasses. He was kind of ruddy-cheeked. You know, he had kind of a round face. He was the studio drummer for Henry Mancini, but he converted his two-car garage into a professional recording studio. It had been Jack's dream to record a big band, so he made it happen. Yeah, we did a couple of jazz band sessions where there'd be, you know, five saxophones, four trombones, four trumpets, piano, bass, drums, guitar, band leaders, groupies, hanger honors. So there'd be a lot of people. Parking was a terrible problem. Matlock Heights didn't have sidewalks or curbs or anything, so people would just park all over the lawn, and the neighbors would get angry when we had big sessions because we really didn't have parking organized well at all. Greats like Al Cobine and David Baker brought their entire big bands to Jack's two-bedroom house to record in his garage. Jack's parents were teachers, and as much as he wanted to record albums, he wanted to teach and facilitate a place for learning. When Mark joined Guilfoy Studios, he was a college dropout, but within his first year, Jack had him teaching tenured professors the art of audio recording. 
he was definitely a pioneer, certainly in Bloomington and in a lot of ways in the audio business. Jack lived in the house with his wife and two children. Mark practically joined the family. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I was 20 years old and hadn't really figured out how to cook yet, so they fed me a lot, and I would um, hang out for dinner. And then we, we would actually listen to records a lot. So if I didn't have a session after dinner, then Jack and I would sit down in front of his speakers and we'd listen to various things. I remember we listened to the first Yes record when it came out. He really liked the way that sounded. He, he was really impressed with the first Yes record, and we were trying to figure out how could we make records in our studio that sounded like that and stuff. So we'd just have listening sessions, too. In the following years, the studio moved, Mark started a record label, and many of Jack's students moved on to successful careers. By the late 70s, Jack closed Gilfoy Studios. In 1993, Mark Hood started Echo Park Recording Studios with his old friend Mike Wanchek, who also learned recording at Gilfoy's. One of our early clients was Jack Gilfoy. So he called up and said, I want you to come up and record my jazz band. We're playing at the Jazz Kitchen. I want to make a live record. So um, so Jack became my client at that point. So we got to work together on that project. It was a CD called The Jazz State of Indiana. This record was special. Oh, it's great. we just had such a great time. I mean, we drank a little bourbon, and you know, and then he came down and we edited it together. And, and it was really, you know, he'd seen my career from 1972 to... 20 years later, owning my own studio and watching us succeed and do that. So I, I think he took a lot of pride in the fact that, but he was nurturing to tons of people. He had students, both percussion students and audio students all over the world. Josh Brewer and James Gray produced that story about Jack Gilfoy's home-based recording studio in Bloomington. With an hour of selected stories from the WFIU Arts Desk, I'm Yael Cassander. Jack Gilfoy wasn't the only do-it-yourself artistic visionary we reported on this year. Exhibitions at the Indianapolis Museum of Art and the Indiana University Art Museum put me on the trail of an art collector who brought the avant-garde to rural Indiana. Before the U.S. got into World War II, Ernie Pyle spent a summer in Brown County observing some of the locals. He devoted one column to a lady who, like himself, had just arrived. Anya Latour is doing a remarkable thing. It's so unusual, it's hard to believe until you know her. Lifelong Brown County resident Charlie Roush is reading Ernie Pyle's column from the summer of 1940. She's trying, apparently, without thought or means of recompense to present to the people of Indiana an understanding of modern art. But in 1940, the people of Indiana were not necessarily receptive to modern art. When the Indianapolis Museum of Art was considering acquiring its first works by Picasso and Matisse in the early 40s, decades after European modernism had debuted in the States, the board voted it down. Booth Tarkington, who was on the board, actually said it is a distinguishment not to have this kind of work in our collection. And that was in Indianapolis, the big city. So why Anya Latour would establish the Indiana Museum of Modern Art in a Brown County farmhouse remains just as puzzling now as it did to Ernie Pyle 75 years ago. I don't know where it was driven from, but she fought hard for her collection to be seen. Anastasia Karpova-Tinari curated the Anya Latour collection, Modernism in Indiana, at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. In 1940, 
the collection comprised nearly 500 works that Latour had acquired through her associations with artists both on the West Coast, where she lived in the 20s, and in New York, where she took a job in 1934. Latour worked at the Federal Art Gallery, which represented artists employed by one of Roosevelt's WPA programs. People don't think of the WPA era as this really exciting time in New York. People really focused on the 40s and 50s as New York becoming the center of avant-garde art. But the pictures Latour acquired there represent some of the artists who would come to define American modernism. Stuart Davis, Arshiel Gorky, and even Jackson Pollock. Never wealthy, Latour grew her collection not only with gifts, but by investing in emerging artists, modeling for them, and paying on installment. For example, the two Stuart Davis paintings that she had, she really kind of saved up for them and paid, you know, a little bit at a time. While working at the Federal Art Gallery, Latour opened up her apartment to showcase her growing collection. The Anya Tour Gallery kept regular hours, maintained a rotating exhibition schedule, and was open free of charge. While her own project was taking off, however, Anya lost her day job. That project fell through, and she didn't have the money to stay in New York. Brown County native Rob Lawless was a longtime friend of Anya's. She was from, from Indiana, and she knew about Nashville being an artist colony, so <clears throat> that's why she came So she purchased a farmhouse near Nashville, installed her collection, and opened her doors to the public. Yeah, it was certainly not your typical art museum. If you look at pictures of Anya Latour's Indiana Museum for Modern Art, you'll actually see she put paintings on the outside of her farmhouse. Her unconventional advertising didn't do a whole lot for attendance. Most of her visitors were Indiana University students, escorted by Henry Hope from the art department. Hope exhibited Latour's collection on campus and purchased several important pieces. But as for the members of the storied Brown County Art Colony... Her artwork was not accepted here. Definitely not. Didn't like what she was collecting uh, because they were impressionists and landscape artists. Rob's wife, Judith Lawless, reminded me that in the 40s, a lot of the artists one might think of as having belonged to a previous era were still alive and working. Adolf Schultz, Ello Griffith... Uh, Will Vauder. Were they still around? And, and yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Marie Goss. And Rob's mother was a good friend of Marie Goss. But there wasn't a lot of love lost between the landscape painters and Anya Latour. And it wasn't all about aesthetic differences. They didn't like her lifestyle. Uh. Okay, so tell me what we're looking at in this photograph. Rob shows me a sepia-colored photograph of Anya and a group of eight guys posing with nutty props out on the lawn in front of the farmhouse. This is some of her friends. Not all of them were artists. They were uh, photography and and did writing. Theater people. Isn't that hilarious? This looks like a very artistic, progressive circle. Were they unusual for Brown County at that time? Very. Very. (laughs) Definitely unusual. They were hippies before they were such a thing as hippie generation. Anya was nothing if not an individual. In the late 40s, she set about building a contemporary house she christened Spellbound. The first time a friend of ours saw Anya, she was building Spellbound House, most of it herself. She was in a flaming red Mexican skirt hauling concrete blocks up with a rope building that house. Yeah, I think there was definitely 
a lot of kind of who is this woman. She said she was having a hard time finding a job because people thought she was a communist and was showing her collection as propaganda. But it wasn't just Anya's liberal political outlook that may have alienated the Brown County establishment. Let's just say that at our wedding, she hung a banner two stories high out the window. Uh, on the balcony uh, where we had our reception. Judith and Rob were married at Spellbound House in 1973. And on that were pinned mementos, two, full two stories of mementos from each of her lovers. Jewelry. Jewelry, a lot of jewelry <laughs> attached to it. She's proud. Very proud of it. <laughs> yeah. I think I recall uh, maybe that she'd been married a time or two, uh, Possibly. Charlie Rausch grew up on the property next to Anya's farmhouse museum. It never entered the picture as far as we were concerned. I, I, I'm sure my mother knew that, but didn't didn't matter. I mean, she was still going to be a friend and help her. Nor was Anya aloof. Two photographs by Brown County news photographer Frank Hohenberger show a gathering at Anya's home of the Van Buren Township Home Economics Club in 1946. Farm wives in pale printed dresses pose across Anya's front porch. Anya's the one in black. She certainly looked different the way she dressed and so on than the rest of the women in the picture. But she got along so well with everybody, I think. And she was really, uh, took interest in me as a kid, you know. Anya created a wall hanging for Charlie's childhood bedroom and helped him paint his ugly linoleum floor. And she and I set about just sponge painting all over that whole floor. It's a pretty good-sized room. We tore that house down in 2007, and the excavator was already working on the house, and I peeled back the carpet, and there was that same, it was still there. Your mom and your dad weren't really that interested in art per se, right? No. Yeah. Probably my dad less than my mother. No, I, I would say that art was something new to us, you know. Over the years, Charlie and his wife have built a considerable art collection of their own, mostly Brown County landscape paintings. Do you think that there's any possibility that living near her as a child in some way influenced you to be interested in art? Well, yeah, to a small extent, uh, sure. Anya's legacy is a little more tangible in the Nashville Library, where Charlie and I have been visiting in a large, light-filled suite that was endowed with funds she left. A painting and two busts of Anya are displayed alongside Hohenberger's photos of the area's painters and early settlers. Anya Latour is part of Brown County history, but also the history of American art. In 1972, four years before her death, Latour left the remaining 140 pieces of her art collection to the Indianapolis Museum of Art. For WFIU Arts, I'm Yael Cassander. Decades after her death, the legacy of art maven Anya Latour is evident in Brown County and at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. But there were no portraits or sculptural busts to preserve the memory of another local luminary. George Shively was all but forgotten when a band of Bloomington residents raised the funds to commission a limestone memorial for the legendary sports figure 50 years after his death. James Gray reports. 
George Shively may be the best baseball player you've never heard of. He played in what was called the Negro League in the early part of the 20th century. And to give you an idea of how good Shively was, he had two back-to-back seasons with more runs scored than games played. The only player to boast more than two seasons with this statistic is Babe Ruth. The only one to tie it? Lou Gehrig. George Shively is buried in Rose Hill Cemetery in Bloomington, Indiana. Sally Gaskill learned about Shively while preparing for a concert. She was working on a vocal tribute to commemorate those in the cemetery, Shively included. So then I read further, and it said that he was in an unmarked grave. And my first reaction was, well, we need to do something about this. So I started raising money to find a marker. And then along the way, I discovered uh, via an email introduction that the legendary Bloomington sports writer Bob Hamill was also working to bring recognition to Shively. We're knocking on the same doors and wound up finding out about each other. Bob had been looking into Shively as a candidate to be inducted into the Monroe County Sports Hall of Fame. This is how Bob came across Shively. Bob had been reviewing an interview with pitcher Cornelius Cook. In that 20-year-old transcript, one line jumped out to Bob. And it said... uh, I only pitched against George Shively once, and it was in a described a Fourth of July game out at Stanford. It clicked with me that uh, if he brought him up, there must be some significance to that. So I Googled George Shively, and uh, it was like striking a gold mine. Although all of a sudden, I realized here's this guy who was a who was a phenomenal player in the in the Negro Leagues. He was a two-time MVP of the Negro Leagues and a seven-time All-Star. Whose connection with Bloomington was that he lived here in the off season. And he played for both the French Lick Plutos and the West Baden Sprudels Negro League baseball teams. Now, the Negro Leagues were not yet formulated formally by then. That was in the, mm, I think, around 1917. I was aware that the two hotels, French Lick and West Baden, both had uh, baseball teams. That, well, they were high-class baseball teams, and they were made up of people like George Shively, black players from the South brought up as porters. And the two hotels played each other 150 games a year. It was the entertainment for the two hotels. And the West Baden Hotel team, which is the one where uh, George played, was picked up and transplanted to Indianapolis as the roster at, with the manager for the uh, Indianapolis ABCs. That, that, that team was that good. They, they would play major league teams on the exhibition swings through here. Much of the distinction that we now associate with Shively's career happened during those years in the Negro League. When he retired, he lived in Bloomington, and he passed away in 1962. It's 50 years later now, and Bob and Sally have raised enough money to buy George a gravestone. And not just George. They have enough money to buy gravestones for the nine other unmarked graves in Lot D-45. This includes the graves of George's wife, brother-in-law, nephews, and a tenth headstone for his father, although his father's grave has not yet been located. Shively's gravestone is the largest. It features a handcrafted granite inlay featuring a portrait of the ballplayer. The Indiana limestone from Reed Corey is being chiseled by hand. Casey Winningham is chiseling all 11 gravestones. Now, when you walk through the cemetery, the achievements of Shively will be easy to spot. For WFIU Arts, I'm James Gray. You're listening to stories from the WFIU Arts Desk, and I'm Yael Cassander. Thanks for joining us. George Shively's legacy had long been neglected because of his race. 
Another local sports legend faced discrimination because of her gender. For an installment of the WFIU Book Club, Annie Corrigan spoke with Reverend and fledgling novelist Mary Ann Macklin about star athlete and coach Debbie Milburn Powers' memoir. Mary Ann Macklin has always loved sports. She would have loved to have been a three-sport athlete at Belmont High School in the 70s, But she just stuck with volleyball and basketball. But football was my true love. (laughs) And I didn't have the chutzpah at that time in my life to try out for the football team. I I could have made it. I'm very sure of that. But uh, I know I'm small, but I would have loved to have played linebacker. But I would have had to bulk up a little. (laughs) She's now the senior minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Bloomington, a job that requires more reading and writing than jump shots and tackles. All the books she reads end up informing her work in one way or another. The book she picked up this summer wasn't for a sermon, but instead for research for her novel. It's the memoirs of Debbie Milburn Powers called Meeting Her Match. Right off the bat, she found a personal connection to the story. It happened to me so many times being a young girl in sports and knowing I was not going to be able to play professionally. And um, and. I don't know how many times I heard, well, you can be a cheerleader. And she has that happen over and over to her as well. Like Macklin, Milburn Powers was a basketball player. She honed her skills in pickup games against neighborhood boys and then went on to play for Indiana University. Milburn Powers was the captain of the 1973 IU team that went to the Final Four. Nevertheless, she said when, when she came back not too long ago, they were honoring the athletes and somebody walked up to her and said, oh, were you a cheerleader here? (laughs) She goes, yeah, still happening. (laughs) The working title for Macklin's book is Butterfinger Zero. It's a fictional reimagining of a real event, the 1975 Indiana High School Volleyball Championships. Macklin was there in 1975 in the audience. Milburn Powers was there on the sidelines as one of the coaches. But more on that in a second. Macklin flips to the beginning of meeting her match, This passage, she says, could have been pulled from her early life. Uh, What happens is uh, she, you know, finds a group of boys who are playing baseball. And uh, she does the proverbial hits the ball, breaks the window, and has to go tell the person once they get back. And uh, so here, here it is. Hi, I'm Debbie, I said as I thrust my hand forward to shake his. We just moved in across the street. When he didn't extend his hand to me, I pulled mine back and stuck it deep into my pocket. I continued speaking as fast as I could, hoping that my words would somehow evaporate into the air without him hearing them. This afternoon I was playing baseball with some boys in the lot next to your house, and I hit a baseball over your fence and broke one of your windows. I am so sorry about it, and I plan to pay for it. Will $5 a week work for you? Out of breath, I paused while studying his reaction. He placed his hands on his hips and stared at me, saying nothing for what seemed like an eternity. I felt like I was either going to throw up or pee right on the front step. Finally, he spoke. Well, Debbie, I hadn't even noticed the window. I just got home from work. He spoke softly with no emotion of anger or excitement. He disappeared into the house for a few moments and returned with the baseball in his hand. This must be yours, he said, and cupped the ball in his hand. That must have been quite a hit. Was it a fastball or a curveball? Startled by his question, I hesitated and answered, It was a fastball, right down the middle. Good for you, he replied. 
You know what? My sister played professional baseball for the Springfield Sallies in the 1940s. I don't know if she could have hit a ball that far when she was your age. He smiled, and I felt a sudden wave of relief. Here's your ball back, and don't worry about the window. I took the ball, thanked him, and ran back home, wondering who the Springfield Sallies were. I'd never heard of girls playing professional baseball. Hmm, maybe I could do that someday, I thought. A friend gave Macklin meeting her match as she was putting the finishing touches on the second draft of Butterfinger Zero. Both books reference that volleyball championship in 1975. Here's what was happening in Indiana leading up to that game. Title IX passed in 72. Macklin was in high school as the rules were being implemented, and Milburn Powers was a coach of various high school girls' sports teams. Macklin remembers that at her school there was no girls' golf team, so one of her classmates played on the boys' team. Then what happened in Indiana is that in South Bend was a place this happened. Boys started going out for the volleyball teams. And this caused a great <laughs> turmoil. And Debbie Milburn Powers had an all-girls volleyball team who played in the state championship against the team with the boy, two boys on it. And I attended that game and I remember, I think what struck me so much is that sports was such a haven for me. And I don't think I'd, I'd experienced hate and viciousness with all the people outside, particularly with gender issues. It was awful. I was just, I think it's why I'm writing the story. I just wanted to go deeper into it. Issues that any sports fan knows we are still grappling with today. Marianne Macklin's Butterfinger Zero, or whatever title she ends up giving it, is still a work in progress. She says sports fans and anyone who loves Bloomington would enjoy Debbie Milburn Powers meeting her match. For WFIU Arts, I'm Annie Corrigan. Annie produced that segment for the WFIU Book Club, an occasional web-based series launched this year. Powers' memoir took us back to the early days of Title IX when WFIU music librarian Elizabeth Clark stumbled upon some rare handbells in the basement of the Columbus, Indiana church where she works as the music director, she gained access to a secret history of a congregation. A few months ago, I made a surprising discovery. I had the chance to show Aaron Hawkins what I found. Oh my goodness, they are much larger than I expected. Erin Hawkins is the director of marketing at the Columbus Area Visitors Center. She's playing the low C. That handbell weighs 11 pounds. It has a diameter of nearly 12 inches. A new one would cost almost $2,000. So it's all in the wrist, I can tell. <laughs> Give it a little. Nice. Hawkins is normally the person giving the tours at North Christian Church. However, she's never seen these handbells before. These bells were made by the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, the same company that made Big Ben and the Liberty Bell. Their handbells are widely considered the best in the world. A new set today would cost nearly $40,000. These bells were purchased for the church in 1959 by a parishioner. With my budget as the music director, I couldn't even afford to replace just one. Marion Wyke remembers the golden era of the bells. We have had several bell festivals that are very well attended. Our sanctuary lends itself 
perfectly. Wyke was there when they made their debut on Christmas Day in 1960. She's been in the choir for decades. At some point, the White Chapel bells fell out of use in favor of another set. I don't remember when we got the Schomerick bells or why we got them. Those are the ones we use every week. To give you some perspective, a new set of Schulmerk bells would cost about half as much as the Whitechapel bells that you're hearing right now. The church has gone through some tough times since these bells were purchased. Over the years, Carol Heinemann has watched the congregation shrink. She's been a member of the church since 1962, Back when these bells were purchased, the pews were packed. Sometimes I feel depressed because when you look out in the congregation and see so few people, and yet the people who come here are are very active. You know, we're not dying. You need to tell people when they say that, well, they're all living as far as I can tell. <laughs> in fact, the church is beginning to reinvent itself. Recently, the congregation voted unanimously to become an open and affirming church, part of a process of redefining their mission. In addition, they've also just learned that they are the beneficiaries of a life insurance policy that will bring them a large financial windfall. Through it all, the Handbell Choir will continue rehearsing every Thursday, just as they've always done. I'm rehearsing with the bell choir in lower level 120. We're getting ready to play an arrangement of the hymn tune, Ah Holy Jesus. And we are going, so we are going to do that with the piece we know The choir likes playing the bells. A few of them are in need of new handles and other minor repairs, which is to be expected after half a century in the basement. But when these bells make their 21st century debut in the fall, Wyke Heinemann and I will all be there. Ready, go. For WFIU Arts, I'm Elizabeth Clark. When Elizabeth discovered those bells, she became immersed in a rich backstory. Music, paintings, books, and plays often lead us back to real life. Last winter, Bloomington's Cardinal Stage Company staged George Brandt's play, Grounded, about a female pilot relegated to flying drones. Producer Annie Corrigan arranged a conversation between the actress starring in the one-woman show and a female vet who saw the play. My name is Greta Robbie. I'm a Navy kid. My dad was in the Navy for 36 years. He was a chaplain, and I just the acting bug bit me, and, uh, and then I got my MFA from Purdue. Sorry, IU. <laughs> my husband went to per- Purdue briefly. My name is Tara Briggs. Um, I'm an Army Reservist. My husband was active duty Marine Corps. My father was a Navy, naval aviator. And so I've had a lot of military in my family. So I was um, very attracted to coming to see the play, very curious about what it was about. I, I, had, I came into the, to the play with biases. I was very afraid it was going to be a feminist play, that I was going to be kind of outraged. How dare you tell me how I'm treated as a female? But I was very happy to see that it was not. 
several things in the play spoke to me personally. Uh, the first time I cried was like when the when you realize like the blur between um, being being at war and being at home and. And from my own experience, um, we talked about when we demobilize from Afghanistan, how quickly we do it. I mean, it's it's a week in your home. There's not that time to decompress. And you're going home to people that weren't there. And I remember, I don't want to cry now, but I remember I used to get honked out a lot when I started driving again. Because although I drive on, drove on base, we would only be like allowed 15 miles per hour. And I, you'd get honked at because you're going too slow. And you're just like, wow, these you're looking out the window at these people and they don't know. Yeah. My my dad served over um, in Iraq, and he he doesn't like to talk about it. And I think it's a way of protecting me and you know the rest of my family. I, I've personally I've been very blessed because I have military in my family and my blood. So I I don't I've never felt like I can't share something with you because of um, protection. But I I'm kind of curious, like if your father has seen your play, if you think that could be like a, a channel to get him to like communicate. He did. If, if you understand it. He saw it um, on Valentine's Day. Actually, my my mom and him came down. They retired to Milwaukee. I think he was afraid he was going to be offended. And when I first read what it was about, I was worried the same thing because mm-hmm. I didn't want to do something that, you know, would that was biased in any way. I wanted it just to, I think it has a really powerful message. I think it humanizes this soldier. And he he did start to open up more. We went out for wine afterwards, and he told me a couple stories. You know, as a chaplain, you go and you comfort those that are dying. And so he's seen the trauma, and he's held their hand as they've, as they've died. And... Um, you know, and I just want to know who who's holding his hand. And it's my mom. And you. And me. I think this play just, it speaks to me on just this whole other level. That was kind of my, my reaction as soon as I watched the play. I have a cousin who is a female pilot who was grounded for... Um, medical reasons but she, she now flies UAVs and I'm immediately like you have to watch this like you know as a as I guess a bonding experience to the people that are sitting in front of a screen and the impact of engaging in war from from a recliner Annie Corrigan produced that conversation. I'm Yael Cassander, and you're listening to a selection of stories produced this year by the WFIU Arts Desk. The character in the play Grounded was drawn closely from life, but other theatrical undertakings we've spotlighted this year are larger than life. It took a while for last year's Arts Desk intern to convince me that a story about a local wrestling league was an arts story, but she did. Emily Schertzma takes us to a place where athletics meets up with performance art. Doesn't look, doesn't look like Gracie Davis quite likes what the crowd's calling for. Are they saying kill? I believe so. It's a Saturday night at the Bloomington Wrestling Ring, and several hundred Hoosiers are poised on the edge of their seats, ready to scream at every dropkick and pile driver, each move bringing a wrestler closer to the infamous 1-2-3 pinout. Pro wrestling is, we do know who's going to win, we do know who's going to lose. 
but what happens inside the ring itself, it hurts. It's real. Here alone here in Bloomington, I've broke my nose, broke my foot, I've cracked two knuckles, cracked a rib, and fractured a tooth. And that's just here in Bloomington. Dan Leeshin, once a professional wrestler, is now a promoter for Infinity Pro, an independent wrestling league that's been based in Bloomington since 2006 has achieved quite a fan base, drawing in over 300 guests per event. The league is slowly gaining national attention. Back Row Hecklers, a popular wrestling podcast, called it the best kept secret in independent wrestling. I used to say that it was high impact gymnastics. There's, there's a lot of athleticism to it. Other people would also say that it's a testosterone based soap opera. It's the most unique type of performance art, I think, because we have a lot of live interaction with the audience and everything like that, and they kind of change our performance as it goes along. It's like an emotional tug of war. Jake Oman wrestled with Infinity Pro, all decked out in baggy fringe shorts and gladiator shoes. Oman will be wrestling tonight at the Bloomington match. Every wrestler who goes home the next day is sore. That's promoter Don Leeshin. And a lot of these guys, you know, they got six-hour drives after they leave here. So they wrestle, shows done at 10 o'clock at night, they hop in their cars, and they drive away. When Jake Oman's match in Bloomington is over tonight, he drives home to Indianapolis. Oman is a rare wrestler without a day job. Between wrestling and hawking merchandise, he is able to scratch out a living. Well, it, it gets me by, um, but it's not a very comfortable living. It's a very starving artist type living. <laughs> Jake keeps wrestling because it allows him to express himself in a unique way. We're writing a story, uh, we're acting a play, uh, we're showing off our athleticism. It's a combination of everything. Uh, and if you have a real like grasp on people psychologically, you can just be so great at this. Jake Goman writes that story in the ring and in media materials like this promotional video. Russ Jones, you and the Prestige want to run rampant all over strong style wrestling? That's fine. You have your little fun. But the second you encroach on me, that's when you're going to get this. At the end of the video, Omen points to himself fully in character. The story behind a wrestler's image is just as important as his athletic prowess in creating a following. Well, uh, Jake Omen is a character that's kind of like a scumbag, like a guy who lives on the streets. And it's just kind of like my character is the dark underside of life that a lot of people just don't want to realize is there. And most places I go, uh, I'm automatically the bad guy because of that, because a lot of people don't want to face that. But a lot of times fans will use that opportunity to escape from reality. That's Don, the promoter. It gives them something to focus on that maybe in their life they're having a hard time or something. And they can look at the people in the ring and they can, they can relate to certain characters. Uh, in many, many places, he is considered a villain. You watch him in the ring and you can see a little bit of that coming through in him, uh, just by nature. But Bloomington loves him. It's so much fun. We get to come here and interact with the uh, wrestlers and, and have a good time. Wrestling fans point to the interactive nature of the spectacle as one of its biggest draws. Gregory Sharp is an aspiring wrestler. You can see the greatest movie on earth, but never ever will a movie actually reach out and touch you, which is what we're able to do in a pro wrestling show, a live one anyway. We can change, we can look at you into the eyes, we can ask you for help, we can insult you, we can literally land on top of you. By the end of the heated battle, Jake Oman, our dark hero, has prevailed against his towering opponent, Mike Sylvia. Yeah! For WFIU Arts, I'm Emily Schertzma. The world of pro wrestling turns out to be a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing, offering an artistic experience in an unlikely setting. As the bumper sticker says, art happens, and not always where you might expect it. Our next story takes us to the homespun world of old-time music, 
Bloomington, Indiana, is just one stop on an unofficial circuit of towns where renowned practitioners of contemporary folk music ply their craft in private parlors and backyards. WFIU's arts intern Sarah Panfill reports. I'm sitting on a wooden picnic table in Sam Bartlett and Abby Layden's backyard. The yard is filled with a few dozen or so other people, all here to see Anna and Elizabeth, a duo in their late 20s who tour nationally. Elizabeth Laprell is one half of the act. We um, sing ballads and harmony songs together, and Anna plays guitar and fiddle and viola, and I play banjo. And we also do visual art pieces that go with songs and stories. And most of our songs are from Virginia and Kentucky, Appalachian Mountains. And it's those stories that one listener finds especially compelling. In their material, there's a big story because a lot of them are ballads, so they are truly telling a story. It's not just, I love you, I love you, you miss me. You know, it's more in-depth than that, and you have to follow along and hear that story. The story-driven music that Anna and Elizabeth play is often described as old-time, traditional, Appalachian, mountain music, or, more simply, folk. Sam Bartlett, who hosted Anna and Elizabeth, also plays this music. Old-time music is, you know, vernacular music from the 1920s, 1930s, rural southern music played on banjos, guitars, fiddles. Anna roberts Javalt is the other half of the duo performing tonight. I think the more that we play this music, the less we actually care about the differences between these subtle uh, labels. We play old music that was played in people's homes, music that was passed down from one person to the next person. That's still the way this music is shared, in small, intimate settings like the one tonight. To top everything off about what they do, they do these things called cranky shows. They make artwork on a scroll, and they crank the scroll past you, sort of like the Torah. They narrate while showing you this art. The panoramic scene may be portrayed on a quilt, or created by sewing paper cutouts onto felt. Kids and old folk alike scoot up close to the cranky to hear the story of Miss Lella, which was passed down to Anna and Elizabeth from an elderly woman they would visit. Miss Lella didn't have children of her own but she kind of adopted our whole neighborhood of kids. After a while, we would go into her living room and she could play anything with strings on it. And she would play for us. The audience responds with oohs and ahs. Afterward, a woman tells me why she was particularly touched. It was clearly done by hand and with a lot of love. And it's such a rare thing nowadays to have these stories told to us. But even a century ago, this music was about connecting to a bygone era, explains Brad Leftwich, another old-time musician in the Bloomington scene. When you talk about old-time music, it's, it's like you're thinking about something that's in contrast to modern music. But the funny thing is, if you go back and you start looking at what was going on around the turn of the 20th century, they were still calling it old-time music then. It's always been a way that people have used to connect themselves to the past. So it's kind of been a revival all along. And there are people who devote their lives to reviving this art form. Tamara Lowenthal is one of them. We're all here, you know, <laughs> because we all have been in the scene for such a long time. So just doing it in your backyard, it's like, it's radical, but it's also a beautiful idea, I think. That's how it was done. <laughs> you know, it was done just for your own entertainment. What is it like to see 
young musicians still playing such old-timey or traditional style music? It's great. There was a time when we thought that we would be the last generation playing this music. And then all of a sudden, at, at festivals and fiddlers' conventions, we started seeing these teens and 20s and 30-somethings taking it up with a vengeance. For WFIU Arts, I'm Sarah Panfill. The old-time music tradition looks back while moving ahead. An entirely different sort of musician we spoke with this year also draws inspiration from the past in making new work. Neil Brand composed a new score for Alfred Hitchcock's silent 1929 thriller, Blackmail. An orchestra from the Jacobs School of Music performed the U.S. premiere of Brand's score for the IU Cinema's screening of Blackmail in November. James Gray spoke with the composer. My name's Neil Brand. I'm a British composer and writer and broadcaster. And I specialize in music for silent film. I've been a silent film pianist for 30 years, and I score silent movies for orchestra. The scene that we're hearing is the murder scene at the center of the film, which starts off innocently as a girl in an apartment of a man she doesn't know very well. And then you see him just absolutely descend on her kissing her and kissing her and kissing her and she's hating it and you can hear the point in the music at which it goes over from princess at the ball, Cinderella at the ball to suddenly, oh my god Prince Charming is going to go further than she wants to go and that you can hear in the music so then it breaks down to nothing at the point she kind of walks away from him the camera dollies towards our girl looking terrified And it's very Hitchcock. It places us in the position of voyeurs, whether we want to be or not. Then when he grabs her, I make the music sort of massive, awful. And then I turned it again because of my love of Hitchcock music. I turned it into something that sounds very like Bernard Herrmann's music for North by Northwest. Because that feel of a demonic dance this was the devil's spin that we were listening to. Yippa, 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 yippa. They're behind a curtain. God knows what he's doing to her. And you see her hand come out and grab hold of a knife, which just happens to be lying on a table beside the bed. And as soon as that knife goes up and inside the curtain, I just cut straight into a version of the psycho strings. So what you get is and then it cuts to bam, 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 bam. Four or five big, deep stabs that she makes with that knife. And then I did something with the music which I was very proud of and still thankfully works. I wanted to give the impression, and I don't know if this is going to make any sense, that what she'd done was so horrific it had kind of broken the score and broken the film. She'd sort of busted it. And so we'd had music, 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 music up until that point. And then from the second that we knew we saw his arm and knew she'd killed him, I put very tight little clusters of high strings together in music that doesn't sound like chords. It moves, but it moves in clusters. And what I was trying to get was that sound you'd have in your ears still after you'd heard a really loud noise. So that high whistling ringing in your ears. And those high strings stay with us all the way through her 
coming shocked, you know, with kind of trauma, out from behind the bedclothes, still holding the bloody knife, dropping the knife, shaking. She's almost in a sort of trance of horror at what she's done. And everything has changed. Everything that happened musically and dramatically up until that point now no longer has a validity because everything's changed. She has murdered a guy. She has completely changed the world. She is in her own little year zero, and so is the music. So for the next, oh, 20 minutes pretty much, in the score, you don't hear a single note of anything you've heard before. James Gray produced that profile of composer Neil Brand. I'm Yael Cassander, and you're listening to a selection of this year's stories from the WFIU Arts Desk. Artists have long been making art that references other art forms. The Greeks created the ekphrastic poem to describe a work of art, and the tradition has persisted ever since. Think Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn and Respighi's Botticelli Triptych. At the prompting of the proprietors of a Bloomington art gallery, ten local poets wrote and performed ekphrastic poems about ten works of visual art by local artists. The readings took place in the gallery where the paintings were hung. I spoke with one poet-painter pair. So the title of the painting is The Sun Shines From My Eyes. And I'm Ray Perigo. It's a skull sitting in a field of grass with this you know, beautiful empty blue sky above it with these two flowers poking out of the eye sockets. Making concrete the fact that, you know, one day I'm not going to be around anymore. Uh, I first walked into a room that had lots of paintings sitting about at different angles on different pieces of furniture, and yours caught my eye immediately. I'm Patsy Ron. The flowers caught my eye, that they were in the eye sockets. It wasn't a dark, uh, scary skull. The image in some way reminded me a bit of the Day of the Dead, And I wondered if those images of skulls of the Day of the Dead that are often decorated with flowers or bright colors, if you're aware of that or if that had any influence in the back of your mind? I'm aware of it, but only vaguely. It wasn't a a conscious thing. The feeling for a skull in that celebration is is positive. But also the warm sun on the on the skull that you put is 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 so unexpected. You know, when you see a skull You don't expect it to be lit by a warm afternoon sun. (laughs) But as I looked at it, I, I reached the teeth. I mean, you really drew the heck out of those teeth. It just grabbed me, and I said, that's it. It's hooked me. The ten teeth of death. The skull sits upright in the field of grass its smooth cap shining warm in the afternoon sun. Ten teeth rest in its gaping mouth, five above and five below, almost enough to chew a meal with. My first draft, I did try and, in words, describe further each of these elements of life, and it got really way too heavy. I don't mean in darkness, I mean in weight. It was just too much, and I knew I wanted to create some kind of sound piece with it. Saw, saw. Saw, 
a song to regret the loss and the sadness. Four Tooth Four sings the song. A song to gentle happiness and contentment. Five Tooth Five sings the song. Yip, 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 yip. Yip, 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 yip. Yip, 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 yip. A song to riotous energy and ecstatic joy. Six to six. I wanted the audience to participate in the creation of that sound that encompassed it all, and then I wanted them to all be able to just and I to fade it out until it was gone. A song of letting go. At the end, you get this whirling cacophony of noise that just stops abruptly and without warning and fades off into silence, which is like really the whole point of, of you know, the piece. I love the fact that in the future, and I welcome anybody to do this, to take this poem and to play with the sounds, do what you want with it so that it becomes something that can be um, a living event uh, every time it's done. Creativity will inspire more creativity, will inspire more creativity down the line. And, you know, eventually you get some whole new thing that is just loosely tied to the original material and that takes on a life of its own and then the cycle continues. That's just par for the course with making things. Where it came from isn't so much the point. (laughs) Where it's going is the point. Right. Right. You've been listening to a selection of stories from the WFIU Arts Desk, and I'm Yael Cassander. The stories you heard this hour were broadcast on WFIU over the course of 2015 and are archived at wfiu.org arts. Contributors to this program include Annie Corrigan, James Gray, Josh Brewer, Elizabeth Clark, Emily Schertzma, and Sarah Panfill, with audio editing from Casey Zakin. Executive producer of WFIU Programming is Will Murphy. From all of us, Happy New Year.